And now, Chapter 12, Man's Reason. There was one of the tribe of Tarzan who questioned his authority, and that was Turkaz, the son of Tublet. But he so feared the keen knife and the deadly arrows of his new lord that he confined the manifestation of his objections to petty disobediences and irritating mannerisms. Tarzan knew, however, that he but waited his opportunity to wrest the kingship from him by some sudden stroke of treachery, and so he was ever on his guard against surprise. For months the life of the little band went on much as it had before, except that Tarzan's greater intelligence and his ability as a hunter were the means of providing for them more bountifully than ever before. Most of them, therefore, were more content with the change in rulers. Tarzan led them by night to the fields of the black men, and there, warned by their chief's superior wisdom, they ate only what they required. Nor did they ever destroy what they could not eat, as is the way of man, as is the way of Manu the monkey, and of most apes. So, while the blacks were wroth at the continued pilfering of their fields, they were not discouraged in their efforts to cultivate the land, as would have been the case had Tarzan permitted his people to lay waste the plantation wantonly. During this period Tarzan paid many nocturnal visits to the village, where he often renewed his supply of arrows. He soon noticed the food always standing at the foot of the tree, which was his avenue into the palisade, and after a little he commenced to eat whatever the blacks put there. When the awestruck savages saw that the food disappeared overnight, they were filled with consternation and dread. For it was one thing to put food out to propitiate a god or a devil, but quite another thing to have the spirit really come into the village and eat it. Such a thing was unheard of, and it clouded their superstitious minds with all manner of vague fears. Nor was this all. The periodic disappearance of their arrows and the strange pranks perpetrated by unseen hands had wrought them to such a state that life had become a veritable burden in their new home. And now it was that Mbanga and his head men began to talk of abandoning the village and seeking a site further on into the jungle. Presently the black warriors began to strike farther and farther south into the heart of the forest when they went to hunt, looking for a site for a new village. More often was the tribe of Tarzan disturbed by these wandering huntsmen. Now was the quiet, fierce solitude of the primeval forest broken by new strange cries. No longer was there safety for bird or beast. Man had come. Other animals passed up and down the jungle by day and by night. Fierce, cruel beasts. But their weaker neighbors only fled from their immediate vicinity to return again when the danger was past. With man it is different. When he comes, many of the larger animals instinctively leave the district entirely, seldom if ever to return. And thus it has always been with the great anthropoids. They flee man as man flees a pestilence. For a short time the tribe of Tarzan lingered in the vicinity of the beach because their new chief hated the thought of leaving the treasured contents of the little cabin forever. But when one day a member of the tribe discovered the blacks in great numbers on the banks of the little stream that had been their watering place for generations, and in the act of clearing a space in the jungle and erecting many huts, the apes would remain no longer. And so Tarzan led them inland for many marches 
to a spot as yet undefiled by the foot of a human being. Once every moon, Tarzan would go swinging rapidly back through the swaying branches to have a day with his books and to replenish his supply of arrows. This latter task was becoming more and more difficult, for the blacks had taken to hiding their supply away at night in granaries and living huts. This necessitated watching by day on Tarzan's part to discover where the arrows were being concealed. Twice had he entered huts at night while the inmates lay sleeping upon their mats and stolen the arrows from the very sides of the warriors. But this meant that he realized to be too fraught with danger, and so he commenced picking up solitary hunters with his long deadly noose, stripping them of the weapons and ornaments and dropping their bodies from a high tree into the village street during the still watches of the night. These various escapades again so terrorized the blacks that, had it not been for the monthly respite between Tarzan's visits, in which they had opportunity to renew hope that each fresh incursion would prove the last, they soon would have abandoned their new village. The blacks had not yet as come upon Tarzan's cabin on the distant beach, but the ape-man lived in constant dread that, while he was away with the tribe, they would discover and despoil his treasure. So it came that he spent more and more time in the vicinity of his father's last home, and less and less with the tribe. Presently, the members of his little community began to suffer on account of his neglect, for disputes and quarrels constantly arose which only the king might settle peaceably. At last, some of the older apes spoke to Tarzan on the subject, and for a month thereafter, he remained constantly with the tribe. The duties of kingship among the anthropoids are not many or arduous. In the afternoon comes Thaka, possibly to complain that old Mungo has stolen his new wife. Then must Tarzan summon all before him, and if he finds that the wife prefers her new lord, he commands that matters remain as they are, or possibly that Mungo give Thaka one of his daughters in exchange. Whatever his decision, the apes accept it as final and return to their occupations satisfied. Then comes Tana, shrieking and holding tight her side from which blood is streaming. Gunto, her husband, has cruelly bitten her. And Gunto, summoned, says that Tana is lazy and will not bring him nuts and beetles or scratch his back for him. So Tarzan scolds them both and threatens Gunto with a taste of the death-bearing slivers if he abuses Tana further. But Tana, for her part, is compelled to promise better attention to her wifely duties. And so it goes, little family differences for the most part, which, if left unsettled, would result finally in greater factional strife and the eventual dismemberment of the tribe. But Tarzan tired of it, as he found that kingship meant the curtailment of his liberty. He longed for the little cabin in the sun-kissed sea, for the cool interior of the well-built house, and for the never-ending wonders of the many books. As he had grown older, he found that he had grown away from his people. Their interests and his were far removed. They had not kept pace with him, nor could they understand aught of the many strange and wonderful dreams that passed through the active brain of their human king. So limited was their vocabulary that Tarzan could not even talk with them of the many new truths and the great fields of thought that his reading had opened up before his longing eyes or made known ambitions which stirred his soul. 
Among the tribe, he no longer had friends as of old. A little child may find companionship in many strange and simple creatures, but to a grown man, there must be some semblance of equality in intellect as the basis for agreeable association. Had Kala lived, Tarzan would have sacrificed all else to remain near her, but now that she was dead, and the playful friends of his childhood grown into fierce and surly brutes, he felt that he much preferred the peace and solitude of his cabin to the irksome duties of leadership amongst a horde of wild beasts. The hatred and jealousy of Turkaz, son of Tublet, did much to counteract the effect of Tarzan's desire to renounce his kingship among the apes, for, stubborn young Englishman that he was, he could not bring himself to retreat in the face of so malignant an enemy. That Turkaz would be chosen leader in his stead, he knew full well, for time and again the ferocious brute had established his claim to physical supremacy over the few bull apes who had dared resent his savage bullying. Tarzan would have liked to subdue the ugly beast without recourse to knife or arrows. So much had his great strength and agility increased in the period following his maturity that he had come to believe that he might master the redoubtable Turkaz in a hand-to-hand fight if it were not for the terrible advantage the anthropoid's huge fighting fangs gave him over the poorly armed Tarzan. The entire matter was taken out of Tarzan's hands one day by force of circumstance, and his future left open to him, so that he might go or stay without any stain upon his savage escutcheon. It happened this way. The tribe was feeding quietly, spread over a considerable area, when a great screaming arose some distance east of where Tarzan lay upon his belly beside a limpid brook, attempting to catch an elusive fish in his quick brown hand. With one accord, the tribe swung rapidly toward the frightened cry, and there found Turkaz holding an old female by the hair and beating her unmercifully with his great hands. As Tarzan approached, he raised his hand aloft for Turkaz to desist, for the female was not his, but belonged to a poor old ape whose fighting days were long over, and who, therefore, could not protect his family. Turkaz knew that it was against the laws of his kind to strike this woman of another, but being a bully, he had taken advantage of the weakness of the female's husband to chastise her, because she had refused to give up to him a tender young rodent she had captured. When Turkaz saw Tarzan approaching without his arrow, he continued to belabor the poor woman in a studied effort to affront his hated chieftain. Tarzan did not repeat his warning signal, but instead rushed bodily upon the waiting Turkaz. Never had the ape-man fought so terrible a battle since that long-gone day when Bolgani, the great king gorilla, had so horribly manhandled him ere the new-found knife had, by accident, pricked the savage heart. Tarzan's knife on the present occasion but barely offset the gleaming fangs of Turkaz, and what little advantage the ape had over the man in brute strength was almost balanced by the latter's wonderful quickness and agility. In the sum total of their points, however, the anthropoid had a shade the better of the battle, and had there been no other personal attribute to influence the final outcome, Tarzan of the apes, the young Lord Greystoke, would have died as he had lived, an unknown savage beast in equatorial Africa. But there was that which had raised him far above his fellows of the jungle, that little spark which spells the whole vast difference between man and brute, reason. 
This it was which saved him from death beneath the iron muscles and tearing fangs of Turkaz. Scarcely had they fought a dozen seconds ere they were rolling upon the ground, striking, tearing, and rending. Two great savage beasts battling to the death. Turkaz had a dozen knife wounds on head and breast, and Tarzan was torn and bleeding, his scalp in one place half torn from his head, so that a great piece hung down over one eye, obstructing his vision. But so far, the young Englishman had been able to keep those horrible fangs from his jugular, and now, as they fought less fiercely for a moment to regain their breath, Tarzan formed a cunning plan. He would work his way to the other's back, and, clinging there with tooth and nail, drive his knife home until Turkaz was no more. The maneuver was accomplished more easily than he had hoped, for the stupid beast, not knowing what Tarzan was attempting, made no particular effort to prevent the accomplishment of the design. But when, finally, he realized that his antagonist was fastened to him where his teeth and fists alike were useless against him, Turkaz hurled himself about upon the ground so violently that Tarzan could but cling desperately to the leaping, turning, twisting body. And ere he had struck a blow, the knife was hurled from his hand by a heavy impact against the earth, and Tarzan found himself defenseless. During the rollings and squirmings of the next few minutes, Tarzan's hold was loosened a dozen times until finally an accidental circumstance of those swift and ever-changing evolutions gave him a new hold with his right hand, which he realized was absolutely unassailable. His arm was passed beneath Turkaz's arms from behind, and his hand and forearm encircled the back of Turkaz's neck. It was that half-Nelson of modern wrestling which the untaught ape-man had stumbled upon, but superior reason showed him in an instant the value of the thing he had discovered. There was the difference to him between life and death. And so he struggled to encompass a similar hold with the left hand, and in a few moments, Turkaz's bull neck was creaking beneath the full Nelson. There was no more lunging about now. The two lay perfectly still upon the ground, Tarzan upon Turkaz's back. Slowly the bullet head of the ape was being forced lower and lower upon his chest. Tarzan knew what the result would be. In an instant the neck would break. Then there came to Turkaz's rescue the same thing that had put him in those sore straits. A man's reasoning power. If I kill him, thought Tarzan, what advantage will it be to me? Will it not rob the tribe of a great fighter? And if Turkaz be dead, he will know nothing of my supremacy. While alive, he will ever be an example to the other apes. Kagoda! hissed Tarzan in Turkaz's ear which in ape tongue means, freely translated, do you surrender? For a moment, there was no reply, and Tarzan added a few more ounces of pressure, which elicited a horrified shriek of pain from the great beast. Kagoda! Kagoda! repeated Tarzan. Kagoda! cried Turkaz. Listen, said Tarzan, easing up a trifle, but not releasing his hold. I am Tarzan. King of the apes, mighty hunter, mighty fighter. In all the jungle there is none so great. You have said, Kagoda, to me. All the tribe have heard. Quarrel no more with your king or your people. For next time, I shall kill you. Do you understand? 
Huh? Assented Turkaz. And you are satisfied? Huh? Said the ape. Tarzan led him up. And in a few minutes, all were back at their vocations, as though not it occurred to mar the tranquility of their primeval forest haunts. But deep in the minds of the apes was rooted the conviction that Tarzan was a mighty fighter and a strange creature. Strange because he had had it in his power to kill his enemy, but had allowed him to live unharmed. That afternoon as the tribe came together, as was their wont before darkness settled on the jungle, Tarzan, his wounds washed in the waters of the stream, called the old males about him. You have seen again today that Tarzan of the apes is the greatest among you, he said. Huh, they replied with one voice. Tarzan is great. Tarzan, he continued, is not an ape. He is not like his people. His ways are not their ways. And so, Tarzan is going back to the lair of his own kind by the waters of the great lake, which has no farther shore. You must choose another to rule you, for Tarzan will not return. And thus, young Lord Greystoke took the first step toward the goal which he had set, the finding of other white men like himself. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Chapter 13 His Own Kind The following morning, Tarzan, lame and sore from the wounds of his battle with Turkaz, set out toward the west and the seacoast. He traveled very slowly, sleeping in the jungle at night and reaching his cabin late the following morning. For several days he moved about but little, only enough to gather what fruits and nuts he required to satisfy the demands of hunger. In ten days he was quite sound again, except for a terrible half-healed scar, which, starting above his left eye, ran across the top of his head, ending at the right ear. It was the mark left by Turkaz when he had torn the scalp away. During his convalescence, Tarzan tried to fashion a mantle from the skin of saber, which had lain all this time in the cabin, but he found the hide had dried as stiff as a board, and as he knew naught of tanning, he was forced to abandon his cherished plan. Then he determined to filch what few garments he could from one of the black men of Umbanga's village, for Tarzan of the Apes had decided to mark his evolution from the lower orders in every possible manner, and nothing seemed to him a more distinguishing badge of manhood than ornaments and clothing. To this end, therefore, he collected the various arm and leg ornaments he had taken from the black warriors who had succumbed to his swift and silent noose, and donned them all after the way he had seen them worn. About his neck hung the golden chain from which depended the diamond-encrusted locket of his mother, the Lady Alice. At his back was a quiver of arrows slung from a leathern shoulder belt, another piece of loot from some vanquished native. About his waist was a belt of tiny strips of rawhide fashioned by himself as a support for the homemade scabbard in which hung his father's hunting knife. The long bow which had been Kulanga's hung over his left shoulder. 
The young Lord Greystoke was indeed a strange and warlike figure, his mass of black hair falling to his shoulders behind and cut with his hunting knife to a rude bang upon his forehead that it might not fall before his eyes. His straight and perfect figure, muscled as the best of the ancient Roman gladiators, must have been muscled. A personification was Tarzan of the Apes, of the primitive man, the hunter, the warrior. With the noble poise of his handsome head upon those broad shoulders and the fire of life and intelligence in those fine, clear eyes, he might readily have typified some demigod of a wild and warlock bygone people of his ancient forest. But of these things Tarzan did not think. He was worried because he had not clothing to indicate to all the jungle folks that he was a man and not an ape. And grave doubt often entered his mind as to whether he might not yet become an ape. Was not hair commencing to grow upon his face? All the apes had hair upon theirs, but the black men were entirely hairless, with very few exceptions. True, he had seen pictures in his books of men with great masses of hair upon lip and cheek and chin. But nevertheless, Tarzan was afraid. Almost daily he wetted his keen knife and scraped and whittled at his young beard to eradicate this degrading emblem of apehood. And so he learned to shave, rudely and painfully, it is true, but nevertheless, effectively. When he felt quite strong again after his bloody battle with Turkaz, Tarzan set off one morning toward Mbanga's village. He was moving carelessly along a winding jungle trail instead of making his progress through the trees, when suddenly he came face to face with a black warrior. The look of surprise on the savage face was almost comical, and before Tarzan could unsling his bow, the fellow had turned and fled down the path, crying out in alarm as though to others before him. Tarzan took to the trees in pursuit, and in a few moments came in view of the man desperately striving to escape. There were three of them, and they were racing madly in single file through the dense undergrowth. Tarzan easily outdistanced them, nor did they see his silent passage above their heads, nor note the crouching figure squatted upon a low branch ahead of them beneath which the trail led them. Tarzan let the first two pass beneath him, but as the third came swiftly on, the quiet noose dropped around the native throat. A quick jerk drew it taut. There was an agonized scream from the victim, and his fellows turned to see his struggling body rise, as if by magic, slowly into the dense foliage of the trees above. With frightened shrieks they wheeled once more and plunged on in their efforts to escape. Tarzan dispatched his prisoner quickly and silently, removed the weapons and ornaments, and, oh, the greatest joy of all, a handsome deerskin breechcloth, which he quickly transferred to his own person. Now indeed was he dressed as a man should be. None there was who could now doubt his high origin. How he should have liked to have returned to the tribe to parade before their envious gaze this wondrous finery. Taking the body across his shoulder, he moved more slowly through the trees toward the little palisaded village, for he again needed arrows. As he approached quite close to the enclosure, he saw an excited group surrounding the two fugitives, who, trembling with fright and exhaustion, were scarce able to recount the uncanny details of their adventure. Mirando, they said, who had been ahead of them a short distance, had suddenly come screaming toward them, crying that a terrible white and naked warrior was pursuing him. The three of them had hurried toward the village as rapidly as their legs would carry them. 
Again, Mirando's shrill cry of mortal terror had caused them to look back, and there they had seen the most horrible sight. Their companion's body flying upwards into the trees, his arms and legs beating the air, and his tongue protruding from his open mouth. No other sound did he utter, nor was there any creature in sight about him. The villagers were worked up into a state of fear bordering on panic. But wise old Umbanga affected to feel considerable skepticism regarding the tale, and attributed the whole fabrication to their fright in the face of some real danger. You tell us this great story, he said, because you do not dare to speak the truth. You do not dare admit that when the lion sprang upon Mirando, you ran away and left him. You are cowards. Scarcely had Umbanga ceased speaking when a great crashing of branches in the trees above them caused them to look up in renewed terror. The sight that met their eyes made even wise old Umbanga shudder. For there, turning and twisting in the air, came the dead body of Mirando to sprawl with a sickening reverberation upon the ground at their feet. With one accord the natives took to their heels, nor did they stop until the last of them was lost in the dense shadows of the surrounding jungle. Again Tarzan came down into the village and renewed his supply of arrows and ate of the offering of food which they had made to appease his wrath. Before he left, he carried the body of Mirando to the gate of the village and propped it up against the palisade in such a way that the dead face seemed to be peering around the edge of the gatepost down the path which led to the jungle. Then Tarzan returned, hunting, always hunting, to the cabin by the beach. It took a dozen attempts on the part of the thoroughly frightened blacks to re-enter their village, past the horrible grinning face of their dead fellow. And when they found the food and arrows gone, they knew, but they had only too well feared, that Mirando had seen the evil spirit of the jungle. That now seemed to them the logical explanation. Only those who saw this terrible god of the jungle died, for was it not true that none left alive in the village had ever seen him? Therefore those who had died at his hands must have seen him and paid the penalty with their lives. As long as they supplied him with arrows and food, he would not harm them unless they looked upon him. So it was ordered by Umbanga that in addition to the food offering, it should also be laid out an offering of arrows for this Munango Kiwati. And this was done from then on. If you ever chance to pass that far-off African village, you will still see before a tiny thatched hut built just without the village a little iron pot in which is a quantity of food, and beside it, a quiver of well-daubed arrows. When Tarzan came in sight of the beach where stood his cabin, a strange and unusual spectacle met his vision. On the placid waters of the landlocked harbor floated a great ship, and on the beach a small boat was drawn up. But, most wonderful of all, a number of white men like himself were moving about between the beach and his cabin. Tarzan saw that in many ways they were like the men of his picture books. He crept closer to the trees until he was quite close above them. There were ten men, swarthy, sun-tanned, villainous-looking fellows. Now they had congregated by the boat and were talking in loud, angry tones with much gesticulating and shaking of fists. Presently one of them, a little mean-faced, black-bearded fellow with a countenance which reminded Tarzan of Hamba the Rat, 
laid his hand upon the shoulder of a giant who stood next to him, and with whom all the others had been arguing and quarreling. The little man pointed inland, so that the giant was forced to turn away from the others to look in the direction indicated. As he turned, the little mean-faced man drew a revolver from his belt and shot the giant in the back. The big fellow threw his hands above his head, his knees bent beneath him, and without a sound he tumbled forward upon the beach, dead. The report of the weapon, the first that Tarzan had ever heard, filled him with wonderment, but even this unaccustomed sound could not startle his healthy nerves into even a semblance of panic. The conduct of the white strangers it was that caused him the greatest perturbation. He puckered his brows into a frown of deep thought. It was well, thought he, that he had not given way to his first impulse to rush forward and greet these white men as brothers. They were evidently no different from the black men, no more civilized than the apes, and no less cruel than Saber. For a moment the others stood looking at the little mean-faced man and the giant lying dead upon the beach. Then one of them laughed and slapped the little man on the back. There was much more talk and gesticulating, but less quarreling. Presently they launched the boat, and all jumped into it and rowed away toward the great ship, where Tarzan could see other figures moving about upon the deck. When they had clambered aboard, Tarzan dropped to the earth behind a great tree and crept to his cabin, keeping it always between himself and the ship. Slipping in at the door, he found that everything had been ransacked. His books and pencils strewed the floor. His weapons and shields and other little store of treasures were littered about. As he saw what had been done, a great wave of anger surged through him, and the new-made scar upon his forehead stood suddenly out, a bar of inflamed crimson against his tawny hide. Quickly he ran to the cupboard and searched in the far recess of the lower shelf. Ah! He breathed a sigh of relief as he drew out the little tin box, and opening it, found his greatest treasures undisturbed. The photograph of the smiling, strong-faced young man and the little black puzzle book were safe. What was that? His quick ear had caught a faint but unfamiliar sound. Running to the window, Tarzan looked toward the harbor, and there he saw that a boat was being lowered from the great ship beside the one already in the water. Soon he saw many people clambering over the sides of the larger vessel and dropping into the boats. They were coming back in full force. For a moment longer, Tarzan watched while a number of boxes and bundles were lowered into the waiting boats. Then, as they shoved off from the ship's side, the ape-man snatched up a piece of paper and with a pencil printed on it for a few moments until it bore several lines of strong, well-made, almost letter-perfect characters. This notice he stuck upon the door with a small, sharp splinter of wood. Then, gathering up his precious tin box, his arrows, and as many bows and spears as he could carry, he hastened through the door and disappeared into the forest. When the two boats were beached upon the silvery sand, there was a strange assortment of humanity that clambered ashore. Some twenty souls in all there were, fifteen of them rough and villainous-appearing seamen. The others of the party were of a different stamp. One was an elderly man with white hair and large rimmed spectacles. His slightly stooped shoulders were draped in an ill-fitting, though immaculate, frock coat, and a shiny silk hat added to the incongruity of his garb in an African jungle. 
The second member of the party to land was a tall young man in white ducks, while directly behind came another elderly man with a very high forehead and a fussy, excitable manner. After this came a huge negress clothed like Solomon as to colors. Her great eyes rolled in evident terror, first toward the jungle and then toward the cursing band of sailors who were removing the bales and boxes from the boats. The last member of the party to disembark was a girl of about nineteen, and it was the young man who stood at the boat's prow to lift her high and dry upon the land. She gave him a brave and pretty smile of thanks, but no words passed between them. In silence the party advanced toward the cabin. It was evident that whatever their intentions, all had been decided upon before they left the ship, and so they came to the door, the sailors carrying the boxes and bales, followed by the five who were of so different a class. The men put down their burdens, and then one caught sight of the notice which Tarzan had posted. "'Ho, mates!' he cried. "'What's here? This sign was not posted an hour ago, or I'll eat the cook.' The others gathered about, craning their necks over the shoulders of those before them, but as few of them could read at all, and then only after the most laborious fashion— one finally turned to the little old man of the top hat and frock coat. "'Hey, Professor,' he called. "'Step forward and read the bloomin' notice.' Thus addressed, the old man came slowly to where the sailors stood, followed by the other members of his party. Adjusting his spectacles, he looked for a moment at the placard and then, turning away, strolled off muttering to himself. "'Most remarkable! Most remarkable!' "'Hey, old fossil!' cried the man who had first called on him for assistance. "'Did ye think we wanted of you to read the bloomin' notice to yourself? "'Come back here and read it out loud, you old barnacle!' "'The old man stopped and, turning back, said, "'Oh, yes, my dear sir, a thousand pardons. "'It was quite thoughtless of me. "'Yes, very thoughtless. "'Most remarkable.' "'Again he faced the notice and read it through.' and doubtless would have turned off again to ruminate upon it had not the sailor grasped him roughly by the collar and howled into his ear. Read it out loud, you blundering old idiot! Ah, yes, indeed, replied the professor softly, and adjusting his spectacles once more, he read aloud. This is the house of Tarzan, the killer of beasts and many black men. Do not harm the things which are Tarzan's. Tarzan watches. Tarzan of the Apes. Who the devil is Tarzan? cried the sailor who had before spoken. He evidently speaks English, said the young man. But what does Tarzan of the Apes mean? cried the girl. I do not know, Miss Porter, replied the young man, unless we have discovered a runaway simian from the London Zoo who has brought back a European education to his jungle home. What do you make of it, Professor Porter? He added, turning to the old man. Professor Archimedes Q. Porter adjusted his spectacles. Ah, yes, indeed, yes, indeed. Most remarkable, most remarkable, said the professor. But I can add nothing further to what I've already remarked in elucidation of this truly momentous occurrence. And the professor turned slowly in the direction of the jungle, "'But, Papa,' cried the girl, "'you haven't said anything about it yet.' "'Tut, tut, my child, tut, tut,' 
responded Professor Porter in a kindly and indulgent tone. Do not trouble your pretty head with such weighty and abstruse problems. And again he wandered slowly off in still another direction, his eyes bent upon the ground at his feet, his hands clasped behind him beneath the flowing tails of his coat. I reckon the daffy old bounder don't know more than we do about it, growled the rat-faced sailor. Keep a civil tongue in your head, cried the young man, his face paling in anger at the insulting tone of the sailor. You've murdered our officers and robbed us. We're absolutely in your power, but you'll treat Professor Porter and Miss Porter with respect, or I'll break that vile neck of yours with my bare hands. Guns or no guns. And the young fellow stepped so close to the rat-faced sailor that the latter, though he bore two revolvers and a villainous-looking knife in his belt, slunk back, abashed. "'You damned coward!' cried the young man. "'You'd never dare shoot a man until his back was turned. "'You don't dare shoot me even then!' And he deliberately turned his full back upon the sailor and walked nonchalantly away as if to put him to the test. The sailor's hand crept slyly to the butt of one of his revolvers. His wicked eyes glared vengefully at the retreating form of the young Englishman. The gaze of his fellows was upon him, but still he hesitated. At heart, he was even a greater coward than Mr. William Cecil Clayton had imagined. Two keen eyes had watched every move of the party from the foliage of a nearby tree. Tarzan had seen the surprise caused by his notice, and while he could understand nothing of the spoken language of these strange people, their gestures and facial expressions told him much. The act of the little rat-faced sailor in killing one of his comrades had aroused a strong dislike in Tarzan, and now that he saw him quarreling with the fine-looking young man, his animosity was still further stirred. Tarzan had never seen the effects of a firearm before, though his books had taught him something of them, but when he saw the rat-faced one fingering the butt of his revolver, he thought of the scene he had witnessed so short a time before, and naturally expected to see the young man murdered, as had been the huge sailor earlier in the day. So Tarzan fitted a poisoned arrow to his bow, and drew a bead upon the rat-faced sailor. But the foliage was so thick that he soon saw the arrow would be deflected by the leaves or some small branch, and instead he launched a heavy spear from his lofty perch. Clayton had taken but a dozen steps. The rat-faced sailor had half-drawn his revolver. The other sailors stood watching the scene intently. Professor Porter had already disappeared into the jungle, whither he was being followed by the fussy Samuel T. Fillander, his secretary and assistant. Esmeralda, the negress, was busy sorting her mistress's baggage from the pile of bales and boxes beside the cabin, and Miss Porter had turned away to follow Clayton when something caused her to turn again toward the sailor. And then three things happened almost simultaneously. The sailor jerked out his weapon and leveled it at Clayton's back. Miss Porter screamed a warning, and a long metal-shod spear shot like a bolt from above and passed entirely through the right shoulder of the rat-faced man. The revolver exploded harmlessly in the air, and the seaman crumpled up with a scream of pain and terror. Clayton turned and rushed back toward the scene. The sailor stood in a frightened group with drawn weapons, peering into the jungle. The wounded man writhed and shrieked upon the ground. Clayton, unseen by any, picked up the fallen revolver and slipped it inside his shirt, then joined the sailors in gazing, mystified, into the jungle. Who could it have been? 
whispered Jane Porter, and the young man turned to see her standing wide-eyed and wondering close beside him. "'I dare say Tarzan of the Apes is watching us all right,' he answered in a dubious tone. "'I wonder now who that spear was intended for. If for Snipes, then our ape friend is a friend indeed.' "'By Jove! Where are your father and Mr. Philander? "'There's someone or something in that jungle, "'and it's armed, whatever it is.' "'Oh, Professor! Mr. Philander!' "'Young Clayton shouted. "'But there was no response. "'What's to be done, Miss Porter?' "'Continued the young man, "'his face clouded by a frown of worry and indecision. "'I can't leave you here alone with these cutthroats, "'and you certainly can't venture into the jungle with me. "'Yet someone must go in search of your father.' He is more than apt to wandering off aimlessly, regardless of danger or direction, and Mr. Philander is only a trifle less impractical than he. You will pardon my bluntness, but our lives are all in jeopardy here, and when we get your father back, something must be done to impress upon him the dangers to which he exposes you, as well as himself, by his absent-mindedness. I quite agree with you, replied the girl, and I'm not offended at all. Dear old Papa would sacrifice his life for me without an instant's hesitation, provided one could keep his mind on so frivolous a matter for an entire instant. There's only one way to keep him in safety, and that is to chain him to a tree. The poor dear is so impractical. I have it, suddenly exclaimed Clayton. You can use a revolver, can't you? Yes, why? I have one. With it, you and Esmeralda will be comparatively safe in this cabin while I'm searching for your father and Mr. Philander. Come, call the woman, and I will hurry on. They can't have gone far. Jane did as he suggested, and when he saw the door close safely behind them, Clayton turned toward the jungle. Some of the sailors were drawing the spear from their wounded comrade, and as Clayton approached, he asked if he could borrow a revolver from one of them while he searched the jungle for the professor. The rat-faced one, finding he was not dead, had regained his composure, and with a volley of oaths directed at Clayton, refused in the name of his fellows to allow the young man any firearms. This man, Snipes, had assumed the role of chief since he had killed their former leader, and so little time had elapsed that none of his companions had yet questioned his authority. Clayton's only response was a shrug of the shoulders, but as he left them, he picked up the spear which had transfixed Snipes, and thus primitively armed the son of the then Lord Greystoke, strode into the dense jungle. Every few moments he called aloud the names of the wanderers. The watchers in the cabin by the beach heard the sound of his voice growing ever fainter and fainter, until at last it was swallowed up by the myriad noises of the primeval wood. When Professor Archimedes Q. Porter and his assistant Samuel T. Philander, after much insistence on the part of the latter, had finally turned their steps toward camp, they were as completely lost in the wild and tangled labyrinth of the matted jungle as two human beings well could be, although they did not know it. It was by the merest caprice of fortune that they headed toward the west coast of Africa instead of toward Zanzibar on the opposite side of the dark continent. When in a short time they reached the beach, only to find no camp in sight, Philander was positive that they were north of their proper destination, while, as a matter of fact, they were about 200 yards south of it. It never occurred to either of these impractical theorists to call aloud on the chance of attracting their friend's attention. Instead, with all the assurance that deductive reasoning from a wrong premise induces in one, Mr. Samuel T. Fellander grasped 
Professor Archimedes Q. Porter firmly by the arm and hurried the weakly protesting old gentleman off in the direction of Cape Town, 1,500 miles to the south. When Jane and Esmeralda found themselves safely behind the cabin door, the negress's first thought was to barricade the portal from the inside. With this idea in mind, she turned to search for some means of putting it into execution, but her first view of the interior of the cabin brought a shriek of terror to her lips, and like a frightened child, the huge woman ran to bury her face on her mistress's shoulder. Jane, turning at the cry, saw the cause of it lying prone upon the floor before them, the whitened skeleton of a man. A further glance revealed a second skeleton upon the bed. What horrible place we are in, murmured the awestruck girl, but there was no panic in her fright. At last, disengaging herself from the frantic clutch of the still shrieking Esmeralda, Jane crossed the room to look into the little cradle, knowing what she should see there even before the tiny skeleton disclosed itself in all its pitiful and pathetic frailty. What an awful tragedy these poor bones proclaimed! The girl shuddered at the thought of the eventualities which might lie before herself and her friends in this ill-fated cabin, the haunt of mysterious, perhaps hostile beings. Quickly, with an impatient stamp of her little foot, she endeavored to shake off the gloomy foreboding, and turning to Esmeralda, bade her seize her wailing. Stop, Esmeralda, stop at this minute, she cried. You are only making it worse. She ended lamely, a little quiver in her own voice as she thought of the three men upon whom she depended for protection, wandering in the depth of that awful forest. Soon the girl found that the door was equipped with a heavy wooden bar upon the inside, and after several efforts, the combined strength of the two enabled them to slip it into place, the first time in twenty years. Then they sat down upon a bench with their arms about one another and waited. Chapter 14 At the Mercy of the Jungle After Clayton had plunged into the jungle, the sailors, mutineers of the arrow, fell into a discussion of their next step. But on one point, all were agreed that they should hasten to put off the anchored arrow, where they could at least be safe from the spears of their unseen foe. And so, while Jane Porter and Esmeralda were barricading themselves within the cabin, the cowardly crew of cutthroats were pulling rapidly for their ship in the two boats that had brought them ashore. So much had Tarzan seen that day that his head was in a whirl of wonder. But the most wonderful sight of all, to him, was the face of the beautiful white girl. Here at last was one of his own kind. Of that he was positive. And the young man and the two old men, they too were much as he had pictured his own people to be. But doubtless they were as ferocious and cruel as other men he had seen. The fact that they alone of all the party were unarmed might account for the fact that they had killed no one. They might be very different if provided with weapons. Tarzan had seen the young man pick up the fallen revolver of the wounded snipes and hide it away in his breast, and he had also seen him slip it cautiously to the girl as she entered the cabin door. He did not understand anything of the motives behind all that he had seen, but somehow, intuitively, he liked the young man and the two old men. But for the girl, he had a strange longing, which he scarcely understood. As for the big black woman, she was evidently connected in some way to the girl, and so he liked her also. For the sailors, and especially Snipes, 
he had developed a great hatred. He knew by their threatening gestures and by the expression upon their evil faces that they were enemies of the others of the party, and so he decided to watch closely. Tarzan wondered why the men had gone into the jungle. Nor did it ever occur to him that one could become lost in that maze of undergrowth which to him was as simple as the main street of your own hometown to you. When he saw the sailors row away toward the ship and knew that the girl and her companion were safe in his cabin, Tarzan decided to follow the young man into the jungle and learn what his errand might be. He swung off rapidly in the direction taken by Clayton and in a short time heard faintly in the distance the now only occasional calls of the Englishman to his friend. Presently Tarzan came up with the white man who, almost fagged, was leaning against a tree wiping the perspiration from his forehead. The ape-man, hiding safe behind a screen of foliage, sat watching this new specimen of his own race intently. At intervals, Clayton called aloud, and finally it came to Tarzan that he was searching for the old man. Tarzan was on the point of going off to look for them himself when he caught the yellow glint of a sleek hide moving cautiously through the jungle toward Clayton. It was Sheeta, the leopard. Now Tarzan heard the soft bending of grasses and wondered why the young white man was not warned. Could it be he had failed to note the loud warning? Never before had Tarzan known Sheeta to be so clumsy. No, the white man did not hear. Sheeta was crouching for the spring, and then, shrill and horrible, there rose from the stillness of the jungle the awful cry of the challenging ape, and Sheeta turned, crashing into the underbrush. Clayton came to his feet with a start. His blood ran cold. Never in all his life had so fearful a sound smote upon his ears. He was no coward, but if ever man felt the icy fingers of fear upon his heart, William Cecil Clayton, eldest son of Lord Greystoke of England, did that day in the fastest of the African jungle. The noise of some great body crashing through the underbrush so close beside him, and the sound of that blood-curdling shriek from above, tested Clayton's courage to the limit, but he could not know that it was to that very voice he owed his life, nor that the creature who hurled it forth was his own cousin, the real Lord Greystoke. The afternoon was drawing to a close, and Clayton, disheartened and discouraged, was in a terrible quandary as to the proper course to pursue, whether to keep on in search of Professor Porter, at the almost certain risk of his own death in the jungle by night, or to return to the cabin where he might at least serve to protect Jane from the perils which confronted her on all sides. He did not wish to return to the camp without her father. Still more, he shrank from the thought of leaving her alone and unprotected in the hands of the mutineers of the Arrow, or to the hundred unknown dangers of the jungle. Possibly, too, he thought, the professor and Philander might have returned to the camp. Yes, that was more than likely. At least he would return and see before he continued what seemed to be a most fruitless quest. And so he started, stumbling back through the thick and matted underbrush in the direction that he thought the cabin lay. To Tarzan's surprise, the young man was heading further into the jungle in the general direction of Mbonga's village, and the shrewd young ape-man was convinced that the man was lost. To Tarzan this was scarcely comprehensible. His judgment told him that no man would venture toward the village of the cruel natives armed only with a spear, which, from the awkward way in which he carried it, was evidently an unaccustomed weapon to this white man. 
nor was he following the trail of the old men. That they had crossed and left long since, though it had been fresh and plain before Tarzan's eyes. Tarzan was perplexed. The fierce jungle would make easy prey of this unprotected stranger in a very short time if he were not guided quickly to the beach. Yes, there was Numa, the lion, even now, stalking the white man a dozen paces to the right. Clayton heard the great body paralleling his course, and now there rose upon the evening air the beast's thunderous roar. The man stopped with an upraised spear and faced the brush from which issued the awful sound. The shadows were deepening. Darkness was setting in. God, to die here alone? Beneath the fangs of wild beasts? To be torn and rended? To feel the hot breath of the brute upon his face as the great paw crushed down upon his breast? For a moment, all was still. Clayton stood rigid, with raised spear. Presently, a faint rustling of the bush apprised him of the stealthy creeping of the thing behind. It was gathering for the spring. At last he saw it, not twenty feet away, the long, lithe, muscular body and tawny head of a huge, black-maned lion. The beast was upon its belly, moving forward very slowly. As its eyes met Clayton's, it stopped and deliberately, cautiously gathered its hind quarters behind it. In agony, the man watched, fearful to launch his spear, powerless to fly. Then he heard a noise in the tree above him. Some new danger, he thought, but he dared not take his eyes from the yellow-green orbs before him. There was a sharp twang as of a broken banjo string, and at the same instant an arrow appeared in the yellow hide of the crouching lion. With a roar of pain and anger, the beast sprang, but somehow Clayton stumbled to one side, and as he turned again to face the infuriated king of beasts, he was appalled at the sight which confronted him. Almost simultaneously with the lions turning to renew the attack, a half-naked giant dropped from the tree above, squarely on the brute's back. With lightning speed, an arm that was banded layers of iron muscle encircled the huge neck, and the great beast was raised from behind, roaring and pawing the air, raised as easily as Clayton would have lifted a pet dog. The scene he witnessed there in the twilight depths of the African jungle was burned forever into the Englishman's brain. The man before him was the embodiment of physical perfection and giant strength, yet it was not upon these he depended in his battle with the great cat, for mighty as were his muscles, they were as nothing by comparison with Numa's. To his agility, to his brain, and his long keen knife, he owed his supremacy. His right arm encircled the lion's neck, while the left hand plunged the knife time and time again into the unprotected side behind the left shoulder. The infuriated beast pulled up and backwards until he stood upon his hind legs, struggled impotently in this unnatural position. Had the battle been of a few seconds longer duration, the outcome might have been different, but it was all accomplished so quickly that the lion had scarce time to recover from the confusion of its surprise ere it sank lifeless to the ground. Then the strange figure which had vanquished it stood erect upon the carcass, and throwing back the wild and handsome head, gave out the fearsome cry which a few moments earlier had so startled Clayton. Before him he saw the figure of a young man, naked except for a loincloth and a few barbaric ornaments about arms and legs, on the breast a priceless diamond locket gleaming against the smooth brown skin. The hunting knife had been returned to its homely sheath, 
and the man was gathering up his bow and quiver from where he had tossed them when he leaped to attack the lion. Clayton spoke to the stranger in English, thanking him for his brave rescue and complimenting him on the wondrous strength and dexterity he had displayed. But the only answer was a steady stare and a faint shrug of the mighty shoulder, which might betoken either disparagement of the service rendered or ignorance of Clayton's language. When the bow and quiver had been slung to his back, the wild man, for such Clayton now thought of him, once more drew his knife and deftly carved a dozen large strips of meat from the lion's carcass. Then, squatting upon his haunches, he proceeded to eat, first motioning Clayton to join him. The strong white teeth sank into the raw and dripping flesh in apparent relish of the meal, but Clayton could not bring himself to share the uncooked meat with his strange host. Instead he watched him, and presently there dawned upon him the conviction that this was Tarzan of the Apes, whose notice he had seen posted upon the cabin door that morning. If so, he must speak English. Again Clayton attempted speech with the ape-man, but the replies, now vocal, were in a strange tongue, which resembled the chattering of monkeys mingled with the growling of some wild beast. No, this could not be Tarzan of the Apes, for it was very evident that he was an utter stranger to English. When Tarzan had completed his repast, he rose, and pointing a very different direction from that which Clayton had been pursuing, started off through the jungle toward the point he had indicated. Clayton, bewildered and confused, hesitated to follow him, for he thought he was but being led more deeply into the mazes of the forest. But the ape-man, seeing him disinclined to follow, returned, and grasping him by the coat, dragged him along until he was convinced that Clayton understood what was required of him. Then he left him to follow voluntarily. The Englishman, finally concluding that he was a prisoner, saw no alternative open but to accompany his captor, and thus they traveled slowly through the jungle while the sable mantle of the, of the impenetrable forest knight fell about them, and the steady footfalls of padded paws mingled with the breaking of twigs and the wild calls of the savage life that Clayton felt closing in upon him. Suddenly Clayton heard the faint report of a firearm, a single shot, and then silence. In the cabin by the beach, two thoroughly terrified women clung to each other as they crouched upon the low bench in the gathering darkness. The negress sobbed hysterically, bemoaning the evil day that had witnessed her departure from her dear Maryland, while the white girl, dry-eyed and outwardly calm, was torn by inward fears and foreboding. She feared not more for herself than for the three men whom she knew to be wandering in the abysmal depths of the savage jungle, from which she now heard issuing the almost incessant shrieks and roars, barkings and growlings of its terrifying and fearsome denizen as they sought their prey. And now there came a sound of a heavy body brushing against the side of the cabin. She could hear the great padded paws upon the ground outside. For an instant, all was silence. Even the bedlam of the forest died to a faint murmur. Then she distinctly heard the beast outside sniffing at the door, not two feet from where she crouched. Instinctively, the girl shuddered and shrank closer to the black woman. Hush! She whispered, Hush, Esmeralda. For the woman's sobs and groans seemed to have attracted the thing that stalked there just beyond the thin wall. A gentle scratching sound was heard on the door. The brute tried to force an entrance, but presently this seized, and again she heard the great pads creeping stealthily around the cabin. Again they stopped, beneath the window on which the terrified eyes of the girl 
now glued themselves. God, she murmured. For now, silhouetted against the moonlit sky beyond, she saw framed in the tiny square of the latticed window the head of a huge lioness. The gleaming eyes were fixed upon her in intent ferocity. Look, Esmeralda, she whispered. For God's sake, what shall we do? Look quick, the window. Esmeralda, cowering still closer to her mistress, took one frightened glance toward the little square of moonlight, just as the lioness emitted a low, savage snarl. The sight that met the poor woman's eyes was too much for the already overstrung nerves. Oh, Gabarelle! She shrieked and slid to the floor, an inert and senseless mass. For what seemed an eternity, the great brute stood with its forepaws upon the sill, glaring into the little room. Presently, it tried the strength of the lattice with its great talons. The girl had almost ceased to breathe. When, to her relief, the head disappeared, and she heard the brute's footsteps leaving the window. But now they came to the door again, and once more the scratching commenced, this time with increasing force, until the great beast was tearing at the massive panels in a perfect frenzy of eagerness to seize its defenseless victims. Could Jane have known the immense strength of that door, built piece by piece, she would have felt less fear of the lioness reaching her by this avenue. Little did John Clayton imagine when he fashioned that crude but mighty portal that one day, twenty years later, it would shield a fair American girl, then unborn, from the teeth and talons of a man-eater. For fully twenty minutes, the brute alternately sniffed and tore at the door, occasionally giving voice to a wild, savage cry of baffled rage. A baffled rage. At length, however, she gave up the attempt, and Jane heard her returning toward the window, beneath which she paused for an instant, and then launched her great weight against the time-worn lattice. The girl heard the wooden rods groan beneath the impact, but they held, and the huge body dropped back to the ground below. Again and again, the lioness repeated these tactics, until finally the horrified prisoner within saw a portion of the lattice give way, and in an instant, one great paw and the head of the animal were thrust within the room. Slowly, the powerful neck and shoulders spread the bars apart, and the lithe body protruded farther and farther into the room. As in a trance, the girl rose, her hand upon her breast, wide eyes staring horror-stricken into the snarling face of the beast scarce ten feet away from her. At her feet lay the prostrate form of the negress. If she could but arouse her, their combined efforts might possibly avail to beat back the fierce and bloodthirsty intruder. Jane stooped to grasp the black woman by the shoulder. Roughly she shook her. Esmerilda, Esmerilda, she cried, help me, or we are lost. Esmeralda opened her eyes. The first object they encountered was the dripping fangs of the hungry lioness. With a horrified scream, the woman rose to her hands and knees, and in this position scurried across the room, shrieking at the top of her lungs. Esmeralda weighed some 280 pounds, and her extreme haste, added to her extreme corpulency, produced a most amazing result when Esmeralda elected to travel on all fours. For a moment, the lioness remained quiet with intense gaze directed upon the flitting Esmeralda, whose goal appeared to be the cupboard into which she attempted to propel her huge bulk. But as the shelves were but nine or ten inches apart, she only succeeded in getting her head in, whereupon, with a final screech, which paled the jungle noises into insignificance, she fainted once again. 
With the subsidence of Esmeralda, the lioness renewed her efforts to wriggle her huge bulk through the weakening lattice. The girl, standing pale and rigid against the farther wall, sought with ever-increasing terror for some loophole of escape. Suddenly, her hand, tight-pressed against her bosom, felt the hard outline of the revolver that Clayton had left with her earlier in the day. Quickly, she snatched it from its hiding place and, leveling it full at the lioness's face, pulled the trigger. There was a flash of flame, the roar of the discharge, and an answering roar of pain and anger from the beast. Jane Porter saw the great form disappear from the window, and then she, too, fainted, the revolver falling at her side. But Saber was not killed. The bullet had but inflicted a painful wound in one of the great shoulders. It was the surprise at the blinding flash and the deafening roar that had caused her hasty, but temporary, retreat. In another instant she was back at the lattice, and with renewed fury was clawing at the aperture, but with lessened effect since the wounded member was almost useless. She saw her prey, the two women, lying senseless upon the floor. There was no longer any resistance to be overcome. Her meat lay before her, and Saber had only to worm her way through the lattice to claim it. Slowly she forced her great bulk inch by inch through the opening. Now her head was through, now one great forearm, and then shoulder. Carefully she drew up the wounded member to insinuate it gently beyond the tight pressing bars. A moment more, and both shoulders through, the long sinuous body and the narrow hips would glide quickly after. It was upon this sight that Jane Porter again opened her eyes. Coming next week, Chapter 15, The Forest God. And, Apple listeners, if you're enjoying this Tarzan series, please take a moment to leave us a review for 1001 Stories for the Road. We would appreciate that very much. And here are a few recent reviews for you. Thank you, everyone, for participating. We appreciate it very much. The first one, five stars. Title, Rest Assured, John is a Reader. For the first time in my rapidly diffuse life, I find myself enslaved to a periodical episode. I've never cared a whit about TV shows and the like, but was recently ensnared by the likes of John's reading at Treasure Island. I found myself waiting patiently, who am I kidding, impatiently, for the following Sunday to release the next much-anticipated installment of The Great Tale. Now I am equally ensnared by a story which I've often dismissed as silly. Don't get me wrong, it is silly, but quite good as is the storyteller's talent and expression. This Tarzan has captured my imagination. Thank you, John, for all your fine work. I know you have many irons in the fire, but have you considered T-shirts? I would gladly wear my 1001 About Town. That one from Thaddeus Vaughn Awesome, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, love it, five stars. Great voice from Lubby502, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, all stories, five stars. Outstanding. I can hardly wait for the next broadcast. That one from Fritz19, Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, beautiful, five stars. Awesome, a must-have in your podcast selection. That one from Chester316, Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, Tarzan3-5, three through five, five stars. Wow, what a great story and a great job of reading it. I'm in gripped suspense till the next chapters. Don't take too long. LOL. That one from Market Pop, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars. At first I found John Hagedorn's narration surprising, but now I love 
Love, love it. And look forward to downloading a new installment each week. He sounds like a great guy. Thank you for doing what you do with so much enthusiasm and dedication. That one from AMCK5008, Apple Podcast, Australia. And this one, excellent. All the 1001 podcasts provide excellent entertainment. They add so much to a solo walk and pass the time when engaged in yard work. Thank you for hours of classic literature read in a most pleasing way. That one from Walker One Son, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very, very much for taking the time to leave us those reviews. We appreciate them. And we'll be back soon.